Uh, very quickly and very briefly this morning, I want to ask the question, what's the big deal about the manger anyway? I mean, the kids' production was entitled Back to the Manger, but what's all the fuss about? Because there is a danger at Christmas. It's a serious danger. It's a very real danger, especially for us as Christians, especially for us as American Christians. It's very easy to get sentimental and trite at Christmas and to get caught up in kind of the silliness of the cultural celebration of Christmas and totally miss the point of why we're even here today. So I want to speak just as we conclude this morning just a little bit about the meaning of the manger. And I want to look at two scriptures very quickly. The first is Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. I want you to compare that text to another one, the Gospel of John, from a slightly different angle. John 1 verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of a natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, both of those texts are teaching from two very different angles that Christmas is all about the fact that God himself has come into our world. We call it the incarnation, that incomprehensible unfathomable reality that God himself has become a man. And that's what makes Christmas such a big deal. The manger is more than trite sentimentality. It means that God has become one of us. He's walked in our shoes. He's eaten our food. He's suffered what we suffer. He knows firsthand the joys and the pain of life on our level. He has dwelt among us. As Philip Yancey says, we are now the visited planet. And that one fact, the incarnation, changes everything we thought we knew about God. I want to share just two of them very quickly with you. We could do dozens of them. Uh, The early church father, Athanasius, said that anyone trying to enumerate the benefits of the incarnation should be compared to a man standing on the beach trying to count the waves. They just keep coming and coming, and you can never count all of the waves. And so we know that, so we're just going to give two of them this morning. The meaning of the manger, number one, is that God loves. The first and most important thing that Christmas says is this. God loves you. I mean, the whole idea of the incarnation is the one person in the universe who knows you perfectly. 
Okay, He knows your deepest, darkest thoughts. He knows the best and worst desire of your heart. He knows all the stuff that you don't tell anybody. Not even your spouse. He knows all of that. And yet, the one who knows you better than you know yourself still comes for you. Somebody loves you that much. It's the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3, 16. Jesus said, for God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the good news. That God so loved the world. This is why he sent Jesus. The event of Christmas is God saying, I love you. The Bible says that God is love. It doesn't say he has love. It says that he is love. It is his nature. God is love. And so get this. God created the entire universe. Just so he could create this planet, just so he could create the human race, just so he could create you, just so he could love you. The reason you're alive is that you were created as an object of God's love. God made you to love you. God made you to love. That's the only reason you're alive. It's the only reason your heart is beating right now. It's the only reason you're That last breath that you just took, you took because he gave it to you because God wants to love you. If God didn't want to love you, you wouldn't exist right now. Think about that. God made you to love you. And he loves you on your good days. And he loves you on your bad days. And he loves you when you feel it. And he loves you when you don't feel it. And he loves you when you think you deserve it. And he loves you when you think you don't deserve it. Because his love isn't based on what you think. His love is based on who he is. God is love. His love is based on his character, not your performance. You can't make God stop loving you. You can try, but you can't do it because God's love isn't based on what you do. It's based on who he is, which means you will never really fully understand God's love. You will never fully comprehend how much God loves you. As one author put it, he said it this way. It's like an ant trying to figure out the internet. You don't have the brain capacity to understand how much God loves you. But while you can never understand it, you can know it. Paul prayed this, Ephesians 3, verse 17. I pray that you, New Life Church, being rooted and established in love, may have the power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that passes knowledge? You experience it. See, somewhere along the line, you guys, when we're saying Merry Christmas to each other, when we leave today and we're buying presents and we're going to Christmas parties, somewhere in the hustle and the bustle, we have to hear God saying, I love you so much. One of the things that I do when I teach YWAM in the second phase of training, uh, the School of Ministry Development, is I have some get-to-know-you questions. And one of my get-to-know-you questions is this. What is the most moving film you've ever seen? It's one of the questions I ask. And usually there's an audible groan because nobody wants to limit it to one. But one movie that I'm starting to hear more frequently now when I say what's the most moving film you've ever seen is a film called Hacksaw Ridge. Now, It's not for everybody, okay, so I'm not recommending the film. I'm using it as an illustration here. 
But Hacksaw Ridge is a film about an American soldier named Desmond Doss who was a pacifist in World War II. He refused to pick up a gun. He, he was thrown in jail because of that. Uh, he was let out. He had to go to court to fight for his right to go into battle without a gun. And he decided to be a medic. While everybody else was killing lives, he was going to save them. And the story goes that he gets to this place, Hacksaw Ridge, and, it, and it's like going into hell. I mean, and it is. And the film is, is disturbing because there's fire, there's people bleeding, missing limbs. It's awful. Bullets are flying. And he goes into this hell with nothing but just a medic bag. And when everybody else retreats, he stays there and he's rescuing people under the cover of darkness. And what he'll do is he'll rescue one person, get them to the edge, and he des- uh, devised this thing where he would wrap the rope around them and then he would slide it down his back and was burning his hands, but he would slide them all the way down to people who would rescue them at the bottom of the cliff. And then he would pray, give me one more, God. Give me one more. And then he would rescue another. And he would pull him over to the edge and he would slide them down. And he would one after one. For in one night, he saved 75 lives. And the filmmakers, Mel Gibson was one of them. The filmmakers said when they came together to make this film, they actually watered it down because the eyewitness testimony was greater than what they showed in the movie. But they said if we showed what he really did, nobody would believe it. So here he was. Risking his life, going into this active hell to save life. I have to give me one more. Give me one more. And he rescued him. And that is heroic love. When I see that, I, only a couple of times in my adult life have I been moved to tears when I'm watching a film because I'm so impressed by the character of the person. It was, uh, the first time was Passion of the Christ. And the second time was that film. Now, as a child, I may have wept at other films. I, I may have wept at Bambi. I'm not sure... I, I'm not saying I did. I'm not saying I didn't. But I was so moved by Desmond Duff saving life after life. He's being shot. He got hurt. He's injured. And he's going into hell. Pulling people out one by one. It is heroic love. But you guys, that pales in comparison to what Jesus did. He left heaven. He left the constant worship, the perpetual worship of angels. He left that to come into our hell to say, Father, give me one more. See, you guys, somewhere along the line, we got to stop. Somewhere in the middle of the church Christmas programs, which are awesome, and the school cantatas, and the work parties, and the decorating, and the baking, and the buying presents, and the getting stuck in traffic, and the watching of Elf on television. Somewhere we got to stop. Just stop. And let it in that the greatest act of love in the history of the universe was done for you. You are loved that much. For somebody here who's in a dark place, you need to hear that. And, and, and you don't need to just hear your pastor saying, I love you and God loves you. you. You need to hear God saying it to you right now. You want evidence? Look at the manger. That's the first thing. God loves. Number two and finally is God redeems. God redeems. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus came that he would be a light shining in the darkness. Isaiah 9 verse 2 says this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. 
On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, I know that there's a lot of sentimentality and emotionalism when it comes to Christmas, but you need to let this in. Let this in this morning. Christmas is actually a non-sentimental, fundamentally realistic way of looking at the world because Christmas says that the world was then and is now in darkness. It's in darkness. And I don't think I have to cite examples to prove my point, but I'll give you a few. For example, from the global refugee crisis, which is a crisis, to the lack of clean water in much of the earth. You know what happened this week on Thursday? I, I, I actually, I was in my office and I, and I was praying and just my morning prayer time. And one of the things I prayed, and I'm embarrassed to even say this now, but I prayed, Lord, can, can you just make sure that I have enough money to buy all the gifts that I want to buy, you know, for, for my family members? Because I want them to have cool gifts. I want them to think I'm the, I want to be the cool dad and the cool husband and the cool son, right? I mean, I'm already the cool son. But I mean, you know, I just wanted to like make, and, you know, and I'm sorry. Nobody tell Paul said that. Okay. So I prayed that, and I go out to the hallway where we have a, a, a water cooler, you know. And so I stick my big, giant, you know, cup under there, and I push it down, you know. And, and, it, and clean, cold drinking water fills up my cup. I even spilled a little bit. Put the top on. I go back to my desk. I open my email. First email is an email from Life Water, which is a ministry that we support uh, that does clean water as well as church planting in places like Ethiopia and, and other countries across the, the earth. And it was a request from a village, a guy who was on the ground in a village named Fardano Huladi in Ethiopia. And in this village, they were asking, would you please pray? We just discovered that there's not enough water for this village where we're drilling. So we're going to have to go to another village somehow and somehow pipe in clean water to this village. Can you just pray for water? And I compared my prayer to their prayer. And that I had this big cup of clean, cold water, as much as I want. And they're saying, God, can you? This is a dark world. From the AIDS epidemic in Africa, where 70% of the global deaths from AIDS is experienced by only 15% of the population. To the global orphan crisis, from racial injustice to religious persecution. It was just a couple of weeks ago that the Chinese pastor Wang Yi um, was thrown in prison with his wife and a hundred of his church members. For the crime of loving Jesus. This has happened two weeks ago. In the last two weeks. Thrown in prison. And he had, a, he had it arranged that if he was held in prison for more than 48 hours, there would be a letter that got released which was a prophetic letter to the Chinese government saying, interestingly enough, I submit to the fact that God has established you as the ruler, but what you're doing is wrong. And I'll stay in prison as long as I have to. Can you imagine? And his wife too. On the same day in America, there was a megachurch pastor who bought his wife a Lamborghini on their eighth anniversary. Same day. I'm not against the man's right to buy his wife a car. That's great. I'm all for that. But the juxtaposition of this man in prison for his faith. The world is a dark place. And Christmas says this. You will never find your way unless Jesus is your light. 
That's why the prophet Isaiah went on with these words. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Jesus is the light for this dark world. The problem is, the darkness in our world isn't just out there. Have you noticed this? The darkness is not just in China or Ethiopia. The darkness is not just in the government or in our country. The darkness is in here, in our hearts. Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it this way in a very famous line. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts in other words we've all sinned we've all given into the darkness scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god all like sheep have gone astray no one is righteous no not one that's why jesus came the word became flesh to live the life we should have lived to die the death we deserve to die but not just that to be raised to life for us and as us. Second Corinthians 5.21 is, is the gospel in a nutshell. It says this, God made him who had no sin. Jesus had no sin. He made him to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't you see? The fact that God has come down and become one of us means that God has pronounced his verdict on fallen human nature. He has chosen to redeem it rather than destroy it. See, the father could have said, to hell with the world. He could have said that, but he didn't. Here's what, here's what Jesus said, John 3, verse 17. For God, that is the father, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, the incarnation is God's great and final yes to humanity. I mean, how does God feel about fallen human beings? Well, he answered that pretty decisively when he became one of us. God is for humanity. How in the world can we be against it? Listen, if it wasn't Jesus' purpose to condemn the world, it can't be your purpose either. I mean, if it's true... That God is for the world. In other words, if Jesus was right, if Jesus was right, and he's a good person to, to look to on these matters, I think. Uh, if Jesus was right, and God's purpose wasn't to condemn the world, but to save the world, if he's right, there's some implications for us. Number one, if God is for the world, that means God is for you. I mean, I mean, just think about that for a second, because I think a lot of times, a lot of us would get it right on the theological test, right? You know, does God love the world? Uh, you know, is God for the world? We might say, we might check it off, yes. But then when it comes to us, we think, well, he's not for me. Which doesn't even make any sense. Because you fit into the category of humanity. So, so if God is for the world, he's for you. Number two, if God's for the world, we got to be for the world. 
Now, I want you to note that the world gets used, uh, the, the word world gets used in a lot of ways in the New Testament, but there are three ways it gets used most of the time. Sometimes it means creation. Sometimes it means humanity. And sometimes that word cosmos means the evil world system, which is at enmity with God, alienated from God. Well, when he says God, it wasn't God's uh, purpose to condemn the world, but to save the world, I think it means the first two, creation and humanity. If God says yes to humanity, how can we say no? We can't. Which means just as he incarnated himself into this world to save us, so we have to follow him and follow that model to rescue sinners in this world. It means we got to take the gospel of Christmas to the whole world. And if God says yes to creation, how can we say no? I mean, if you take Christmas seriously, and you're not just playing a game this morning, if you take Christmas seriously, you can never disdain creation ever again because God loves it and has decided to rescue it. See, the gospel is not, salvation is escaping the material world. It's like the material world's bad and we're spirits and we just got to get away from the material world. That is not what the Bible teaches. It's not, get me out of here and let the world go to hell. No, the gospel of Christmas is that salvation has come into this world. The kingdom of God has come into this world, and in the end, it's going to be fully redeemed. Oh, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and Jesus is going to reign forever with justice and righteousness, and every tear is going to be wiped away from every eye, and every wrong is going to be made right, and there will be no more curse, hallelujah, no more sin, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. All shall come right on this Christmas. We are being invited to live in the reality and the truth of the first Christmas. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That is the big deal about Christmas. The meaning of the manger, among other things, is that God loves. And God redeems 